My concern is that um, what they're calling harmonization, I would call centralization. And so what they're really doing is they're concentrating uh, regulatory power uh, increasingly in the hands of the European Commission over the digital sphere and particularly over content moderation. This is the Freeman Report with James Freeman on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Hello and welcome to the Freeman Report. My name is James Freeman. I'm a former member of the European Parliament and this is my weekday show where I break down the big issues of our time in our fight for freedom and liberty. Um, today's discussion will continue a series of shows here on the Freeman Report looking at the state of free speech and the threats to its survival um, that are appearing on the horizon. So I'm delighted that I'm joined today by David Thunder, who's going to talk all through his analysis of that act. Hello, David. Hello. Uh, good, to, good to be here. Yeah, well, listen, thank you for joining us today. Um, I read your Substack um, a couple of days ago, and it really is, I think, a good piece of analysis. It really does, I think, pick out all of the things that we should be worried about about this new EU Act. Um, but before we get into all of that, David, I wonder if you wouldn't mind first just introducing yourself, tell us a little bit about your background, and I guess how you kind of got interested in the topic of free speech. Yes, well, um, I, I grew up in Ireland and I lived about 12 years in the United States. I did my PhD in the United States in political science. Then I came back to Europe to work at the University of Navarra. Um, and my area of training is political philosophy. And so I have a, a natural intellectual interest in these topics about public order, civil order, politics, law, constitutionalism, what it means to be a free society, and what are the conditions that contribute to freedom. And so, of course, uh, I already have a kind of a professional interest, you might say, in issues to do with freedom of speech, because that is, after all, one of the pillars of constitutional democracy. Uh, and when I see efforts to curtail freedom of speech based on rather arbitrary categories like disinformation, then it, it, it worries me a lot. And so uh, I think I've always had an interest in politics, um, especially the principles of a free society. But I must admit that during the pandemic, it was the draconian measures that were taken during the pandemic that really put me on alert and made me realize that there's something very strange and worrying going on in the West, uh, across much of the West, um, and a drift towards more authoritarian approaches to social problems. Um, and so, uh, so I guess we're going to be talking about this, this, this act, the Digital Services Act, which is just the latest in a series of examples of assaults on human freedom. Yeah, and no, I was looking this morning, um, David, thank you for that, by the way. Um, and I noticed you've written a book called Citizenship and the Pursuit of the Worthy Life. Um, tell us a little bit about that book. What, 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 what exactly is that about? Well, basically, there are some philosophers, um, such as John Rawls, who, who argue that citizens, when they enter the public sphere, when they participate in politics, they ought to somehow bracket out their private convictions, their ethical convictions, and their religious convictions, and adopt a kind of public idiom that is completely accessible to other citizens. And I had a suspicion about that, that argument that this so-called public idiom, this neutral public idiom, 
would end up being a kind of catch-all for for whatever the ruling elite wanted to be uh, wanted people to accept. And so I did a very uh, in-depth uh, argument against Rawls's Rawls's thesis um, to show that well, actually. Uh, that efforts to neutralize public discourse or make it kind of nice, squeaky and clean and make it free from private ethics and religion was really a Trojan horse for putting on a pedestal or putting on a higher level the principles that were approved by a particular political class, in this case, a kind of broadly liberal progressive class. Um, and so what I argued for in that book was basically that we need to open the playing field, make it a fair playing field, allow citizens to just argue things out without having to hide or conceal or put on a lower level their personal ethical convictions. And I argued that it is possible for citizens to actually participate in politics and maintain their ethical integrity. And I, I, I can tell you one thing, many people believe that's impossible. So I made a case against the kind of realpolitik position that you have to dirty your hands, get your hands dirty, and it's impossible to do politics without somehow compromising your moral principles. So I tried to make an argument, I made the best case I could anyway, that in fact, it is possible to engage in politics without uh, becoming uh, morally compromised. Um, so lots of people like me actually think that what we should be doing um, in order to protect spe free speech is allowing people to talk, but educating people right from the school system um, and until the older. So so that when people come out and say stupid things, you're always going to get somebody who's going to say something stupid. Um, then people have the tools and the intelligence to be able to cut through that and see um, what's going on. So, David, let's talk about the EU's new Digital Services Act. Um, please, can you just tell us, um, without going into too much detail, because we'll cover all of the points that you brought up in your analysis of it, but just tell us at a top level what the EU says um, the, the purpose of the Act is and what you think it is. Yeah, so basically the EU says that the purpose of this Act is to harmonise the regulation of online um, platforms, um, especially large online platforms, which currently depend on a kind of smorgasbord of different um, local laws, uh, the laws of member states. Each member state uh, basically has its own legal regime with respect to things like disinformation, hate speech, and the regulation of digital platforms. So, so the, the EU Commission wants to, uh, their intention is to harmonize these diverse approaches and put them under an umbrella, which would be the Digital Services Act, and, um, and, and provide a kind of oversight mechanism whereby the European Commission can undertake oversight of content moderation policies at these uh, platforms, um, such as you know, Google or Twitter or Facebook. Um, so there are lots of other issues the Act actually considers beyond just, uh, I mean, for example, consumer protection and transparency in, in these platforms. Um, but essentially, it's the regulation of the platforms, legal regulation of the platforms that the Act is concerned with. Um, and, 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 and my concern is that um, what they're calling harmonization, I would call centralization. And so what they're really doing is they're concentrating uh, regulatory power uh, increasingly in the hands of the European Commission over the digital sphere, and particularly over content moderation, um, because these uh, large online platforms will be subject to periodic 
reviews or audits that are uh, commissioned, that are you know uh, supported or promoted by the European Commission. Um, and so they'll have to answer to the European Commission for the way in which they, re- they moderate their platforms. And the European Commission will have the power to fine them up to 6% of their global annual turnover um, if they don't play along with the European Commission's uh, recommendations um, and the regulation here. So that is concerning from a free speech point of view because diversity of regulations is one of the protections of free speech because you can kind of play with that competition and diversity. And maybe if, if, you, if you get locked out of one regime, you might be able to kind of uh, take advantage of the regulations of another regime. There's competition. And this kind of eliminates that because it centralizes the process in the hands of the commission. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was an MEP um, out in the parliament there back in 2019. And I know very well um, how the EU likes to centralize everything. And also the other thing that it does, which it seems to like doing, is a lot of the treaties and acts that it brings in are incredibly complicated. Um, You find that one document will refer to lots of other documents. Um, and it's almost impossible for for normal um, everyday people to understand what the hell um, they're up to. Now, David, um, I think you, you you referred to the fact that we're talking about large platforms at the moment. Mm. Um, I think I'm correct in saying that that is for platforms that have a user base of more than 40. I think it's 45 million users across the EU. Correct. I think that's correct, isn't correct. it? Correct. Yes. So is there a plan? Um, for to extend that beyond um, large um, platforms with 45 million in in the future? Um, It's not clear to me whether they want to extend it. For the time being, at least, um, smaller platforms will be in the purview of of the member states. The member states will be primarily responsible for regulating smaller platforms. And most of the really significant oversight associated with this, this particular legislation applies only to the large scale uh, platforms, partly because it'll be very costly and they'll have to actually pay a fee uh, for, you know, for the favor of being regulated. So they're going to have to pay into a fund for this. And um, I believe the European Union, European taxpayers, EU taxpayers will also contribute towards this regulatory apparatus. Okay. So in the main part at the moment, a lot of the aspects we're going to talk about in a minute are um, applied to the large companies. Of course, there are mechanisms within the act that give them the ability to um, to suppress all speech online, which they deem to be a threat um, via emergency mechanisms. But just to make that point, because I think that's important um, at the moment. Now, in your substat, you do talk about the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights. Can you please tell us what you're referring to there and if you think this new act this digital services act potentially conflicts with that yes article 11 of the eu charter of fundamental rights um just as article 10 of the european convention on human rights both guarantee the right of european citizens to quote hold opinions and receive and impart information and ideas without interference by public authority and regardless of frontiers so the right to hold opinions and receive and impart information uh, without public interference by public authority, that's very clear, clearly stated in Article 11 of the Declaration, the EU Charter, as I should say, Charter of Fundamental Rights. Um, I believe that this particular, uh, particular piece of legislation 
um, basically goes way too far in restricting the right to freedom of expression. The right to freedom of expression is not absolute, of course. You know, they always give the famous example of calling, you know, saying fire in a, in a cinema or something like that, that you can't shout fire in a cinema. Um, and also you can't advocate violence uh, against a class of persons, incitement to violence. If I said to somebody, here's the address of this person, go to their house and kill them or rob them, um, then I should be shut down. I should be shut down. I'm calling for assault or, or you know, injury to another person. Now, uh, yeah, so, so I think this particular act, insofar as it extends the regulation of speech to a bunch of issues that really uh, there's no justification for that kind of regulation on, such as things like uh, what they call public health disinformation um, or, say, threats to civic discourse. What on earth is a threat to civic discourse? Uh, I mean, um, if I don't like the tone of someone's discourse or I don't like their politics, then I might say they're a threat to civic discourse. You know, they're undermining, who knows, solidarity or they're undermining. Uh, yeah, so uh, these things are, are planted inside th this act, which I find really problematic. It is problematic as well, because I, I don't think there's many people who would call for um, absolute free speech where we can, you know, like you, the example you gave there, where you call for violence or you share information that could be used by terrorists, all those kind of things. I don't think there's any argument against that, but we've already got laws against that, haven't we? We've, I think we've got um, in 2008, there's an act um, the European Union brought in which is against, um, you know, hate crimes and hate speech and all of that. So um, before we get stuck into the detail, do, do you think actually that we needed this, this act in order to, to stop the things which they essentially say that they're trying to stop? Well, I'm sure that because the act is extremely dense and has, I haven't even counted the number of pages, it's an enormous, very long document, so I'm sure you could find parts of that document, maybe to do with advertising transparency, for example, um, or you know, fairly innocuous things like that the platforms should make their terms and conditions very clear to users. There are lots of innocuous things in this act, and they probably would be a good thing to have these things reinforced, you know, in principle, these sorts of basic, a right to transparency and you know uh, freedom of contract and so on. Um, but uh, the issues I am worried about are not the transparency of the terms and conditions. Um, what I'm interested in and worried about is uh, this act's attempts to sanitize public discourse by essentially removing um, certain kinds of hateful discourse from the public sphere um, and also removing what they consider to be media uh, sort of, sorry, disinformation from, from the public sphere. That's what I find highly problematic. And I think I agree with you, David. I think there's reasons for you to be worried because, you know, the EU does produce a regular 
um, report on disinformation. And um, in one of its recent ones, it talks about people being concerned in Ireland um, about having immigration forced on them. That was talked about in terms of, you know, hate speech and racism and also, you know, people speaking up against this whole gender ideology. That is another one of the trends that they've highlighted as something which essentially is all about uh, disinformation. Right. Now, David, we've established that there is something to worry about here. Um, I talked about in my introduction about the slippery slope um, with free speech, because once you remove free speech, all the bad stuff happens. That's how it happens is because you 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 take away the population's defense against the ruling classes. So we've established that there is something potentially to be worried about here. So let's get into the detail of the mechanisms within the act that um, are not looking so innocent. So first of all, tell us what trusted flaggers are, David, and why we should be worried about this. Trusted flaggers are essentially individuals and entities that could be organizations that are considered to have expertise, whatever expertise is required in order to recognize illegal content. Um, and so these trusted flaggers would be employed or subcontracted by the commission um, and to be precise, they'd be subcontracted by digital service coordinators that are appointed by the member states. Um, and these trusted flaggers, their job is to trawl the internet, to trawl through these platforms and identify what they consider to be illegal content and flag it. And, and that once they've flagged it, a report will go back to the platform. Yeah. And then the platform has to act on that. It has to respond to that report, to all those reports, not necessarily uh, take them down every time, but they have to respond to them. Um, and so that's I guess, firstly, this mm. sound, yeah, yeah. Th this sounds like the fact checkers that we've got used to at the moment, which a lot of us know are, are very often not independent. And also they do take a very specific view. Now, you're talking essentially these trusted flaggers, they're their companies, presumably, they'll be paid to do this job. Um, and that money presumably will come from the EU, will it? Um, I, I believe from what from my reading of the act, it comes from the EU. Um, and I'm not sure if they'll somehow take a fee from the uh, platforms to help to fund that work. Uh, they're certainly going to take a fee from the platforms for the auditing work. And possibly, the, I'm not sure if they have a mechanism for taking fees from the platforms, but certainly, yes, EU citizens will be funding, at least some of that work will be funded by EU citizens. Oh, and, and of course, the other thing to make clear here is the these trusted flaggers will be will be um, decided who, who they are, which companies they are. Um, they will be decided by the EU um, and also report to the EU. So if they don't do what the EU bids, presumably, um, they will change the flaggers. Now, how do you think um, platforms like Twitter um, or X, I should say, and Facebook, how do you think they're going to react to this? I think that they'll be worried about it because um, it creates an atmosphere of legal uncertainty. Um, for them, I mean, I mean, let's just say, putting aside whether or not they're concerned about free speech, I do believe personally that Elon Musk has a genuine concern for free speech. So I think he'll be concerned that this will threaten free speech. But I think even companies that don't have, a, like Facebook, that are not particularly well known for their concern for free speech, will be worried about this because 
it provides a discretionary oversight, kind of bureaucratic discretionary oversight by the European Commission of content moderation policies, um, in which it's really unpredictable. Nobody knows for sure how rigorously or you know they'll be actually you know enforcing um, these uh, risk assess. For example, let's take the idea of risk assessment. So there's this, I think I recall it being an annual systemic risk assessment and that the, uh, the, the companies, the digital platforms have to undertake this risk assessment themselves and then sh show what they're going to do about these risks. And then there'll be an audit of the actions they take in response to those risks. There'll be an audit carried out by the European Commission. And those risks include, in the Act, some of the risks that are mentioned explicitly are public health disinformation and threats to civic discourse, what they call civic discourse. Um, so it's not that they're making disinformation directly making it illegal, um, but it's a kind of a sneaky way in which they're going to, they're not even defining disinformation, they're just kind of saying, well, there are these risks out there. One of them is disinformation, public health disinformation is one. There could be other ones. We'd just like you to undertake this report and then we'll have a look at it and see if you're in compliance and we'll make recommendations by doing an audit. And if you don't conform to those recommendations, you might not be in compliance with the act. And if you're not in compliance with the act, you would be subject to fines of up to 6% of your annual, annual global turnover. That's a pretty big incentive. I mean, it, it certainly is. And we've seen the EU commission. They're not shy in bringing about huge fines, are they? We've seen them find the likes of Google and other big tech companies over the years um, in the billions. So I think the threat... The, the you know the social media companies and other platforms where people talk they will see this um as a real threat now the eu commission's categories of hate motivated speech um do you think potentially that we could this is a case of mission creep here um i did talk um just a second ago about the fact that you know, I think the sort of gender discussion around gender ideology um, is one of the trends which they they bring up. Also, racism um, for people who are generally just concerned about their communities. Um, I, I'm not sure if you know who comes up with these terms. It, is that the commission? And do you think there's potential here for, for mission creep down the road? I do think there's potential for, for mission creep. Um, the European Commission, on, on the commission's own website, they say that they want to extend the current list of EU crimes to hate crimes and hate speech. Um, so that will be one step. And then the next step, it says, is if this council decision is adopted, the European Commission will be able in a second step to propose secondary legislation allowing the EU to criminalize other forms of hate speech and hate crime in addition to racist or xenophobic motives. Basically, what that means is that they want to centralize the whole regulation of hate speech because they want to define hate speech as an EU crime, right? Europe-wide crime. Whereas right now, hate speech is generally regulated by the member states. Well, they want to raise it to the level of an EU crime. And then I think that will give more leverage to the European Commission and their trusted flaggers to go after hate speech. Because, uh, you know, the trusted flaggers will presumably be depending on the local jurisdiction, the laws of the, the state in which they're operating. But if hate speech becomes an, a, a European-wide, uh, an EU crime, 
um, then it's open then to the European Commission, uh, the European Union, to extend the list of hate crimes um, beyond racist or xenophobic motives. They could, for example, include gender violence or gender um, discrimination, um, or there could be whatever they want to add. Um, the point is it would be an expansive category that would grow over time. And David, you know, if um, the UK government brings in a new law, I mean, ULEZ is a good example if here, the ultra low emission zone in London, um, the, the, the London mayor brought that in. If the people don't like it, they, they can vote him out next time. So next year there's an election and I think it's highly likely he might get voted out. Who do we vote out um, if we don't like the direction of travel for this? Well, honestly, um, because the European Commission is unelected, uh, there's really no direct way to control uh, who, sta- who sits in the commission or who, who is elected to it because it's, they're not elected by uh, voters, ordinary voters, ordinary citizens. Yeah. So there's no real, the only way, th- this is going to sound radical to some people, but the only way to push back against this level of bureaucratic control uh, at the top of the European Union is probably to threaten secession, um, probably to threaten to, re- to, se- to secede from the Union. Um, that's the only card, Trump card, that I think would be strong enough to maybe make the Commission rethink some of its policies if they could see it sparking such a backlash that they might be actually leading to the, the, the you know, the fragmentation of the Union. Um, so uh, that's the problem that really short of something, if you don't do something radical, there's no intermediate gentle way to stop this stuff from happening, unfortunately, because there's no ordinary democratic process going on that controls what the European Commission is doing here. Yeah, and of course, David, I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious there. I knew what the answer was to that question. Sure, of course, um, it's yeah. one of the reasons why I was a, a Brexit party MEP and I fought for us to, to leave the European Union. Um, let's talk about as as well as the the kind of standard stuff which we've talked about the audits the regular audits and all of the kind of bread and butter of this act there are emergency um mechanisms within the act as well aren't there so i i believe that the eu can call an emergency um which the commission alone will be able to call um and then i think there are certain mechanisms within that so they can say for example um over the past 3 years i can see that they might have used it um, when the vaccines came online and there were lots of people saying, hang on, um, you know, we haven't tested these properly. They're injuring people and all of that. Um, what, what's your understanding of these mechanisms? Well, basically, the text that that, that, that I read on these mechanisms in the Act um, allows the European Commission, first of all, to declare an emergency or a public emergency which could be um, related to um, health, for example, a pandemic emergency, um, or it could be related to, well, I mean, basically it's up to them. I mean, really it's a discretionary power, so it's a prerogative. So that means it could be potentially a climate emergency. It could be, uh, even though I don't, I didn't see that mentioned in the act of climate emergency, but the, the point is it's a discretionary power, a prerogative that they have. So nobody really knows when, under what circumstances, they're going to declare such an emergency. And if they do declare an emergency, they then can demand from the, these platforms 
that they undertake a kind of study in which they um, figure out what measures they should be taking to counter the emergency or to, to manage the emergency, what measures they could take within the platform um, and whether there's anything in the platform that is a threat, that is currently a threat and that they need to, need to uh, you know, deal with. So in other words, it's discretion, it seems discretionary in that they can't say to the platform, you have to do A, B, C, and D. They're making it kind of look softer by saying, you have to study what you need to do. Now, uh, here's one cynical interpretation that because it's a bureaucratic and discretionary power, there'll probably be conversations behind closed doors in which the European Commission is talking to these companies and saying, if you just maybe do this and this, then we'll just make it all go away. We won't have to do these back and forths anymore. We'll just just do this. Um, and by the way, that same kind of behind closed doors kind of conversation will probably have to happen in regard to the ordinary oversight, because I mean, who knows what um, you know what a, a due diligence obligation even what that amounts to to manage systemic risks. I mean, it's very hard to interpret that. So I imagine there'll be these behind the door conversations in which the European Commission says. You'd like to avoid that fine, wouldn't you? Um, so how about if you just take down this kind of content and then we'll just forget about it? David, this to me sounds very mafioso kind of uh, like um, in its approach. Now, um, we've only got about a minute left, David, but I talked a lot and I have been talking a lot recently um, making parallels with 1930s Germany. Um, I'm not talking, I don't think we're there yet, of course, to compare with what happened in the 1940s. But as I keep on pointing out, um, that didn't happen overnight. That, that that context, which allowed those horrible, terrible things in Germany, that didn't happen overnight. There, there needed to be a foundation that was laid beforehand. Do you think I'm being a bit extreme by drawing parallels um, with the free speech issues that we've got now and 1930s Germany? Well, I don't, I, I mean, I think people will misunderstand the comparison immediately. Um, that's that's what I would say, that people will misunderstand what you're saying. Um, but I do understand there's an analogy insofar as gradual changes that were not noticed gradually led up to a catastrophe, a political and democratic catastrophe. So that can happen. Yeah. yeah. It's the it's 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 the um, analogy of the 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 boiling frog, isn't it? Little bit by little bit, um, ladies and gentlemen, David um, Thunder. Thank you so much, David, for joining us today. Um, sadly, you. we have run out of ta- run out of time.